Hi, folks. This okay. is John Curry. Welcome to another episode of the Secure Retirement Podcast. I'm excited about today's topic. Uh, the title is Coronavirus Facts and Fiction. Today, I will be having a conversation with my good friend, Bill Landing. Uh, Bill, say hello and tell people a little bit about who you are. Hey, John. Good morning. Um, I'm a uh, retired professor from Florida State University. I've uh, been living in Tallahassee for 35 years. Um, and, uh, well, I enjoyed I had a great career. Uh, still not over yet, but... Um, <laughs> studying environmental chemistry and uh, chemical oceanography all over the world. And you have had a fascinating career, and yes, you won't be done until the day that uh, you take your last breath, I suspect. (laughs) Uh, Bill, this topic, uh, coronavirus, has become a very, very serious topic, uh, as we all know, because of the number of people that are getting sick and dying. But also, it's kind of, it, is, it is really challenging our system in lots of ways. It's become very divisive. You see friends arguing over it, family members arguing over it. So I'm, I'm happy with the topic you have here, uh, facts and fiction. And we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, you know, some people are going to be asking, okay, uh, who is Bill Landing? What makes him qualified to talk about this? So would you just take a few minutes and share with our listeners what you've told me? And folks, the reason this is happening is because of a conversation I had with Bill last week. I was fascinating, uh, fasc- fascinated by his breadth of knowledge. And it's clear to me, Bill, you've done a lot of homework and research on this. But please just tell us why uh, we should listen to you and why you're qualified to talk about this. Sure. Well, um, first off, I would say I'm, I'm not trained as a medical doctor. I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist. And in fact, the people that, that really need to be listened to are the experts who, who have those credentials, like uh, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, the people that are advising uh, the Coronavirus Task Force. What I do have is uh, training as a scientist. I've been, I've been a scientist for you know, 50 years, uh, studying chemistry, studying science, mathematics, and, uh, and you know, the training uh, that you get to be a scientist is, uh, g- gives you, qu- uh, well, qualities like, uh, you know, skepticism. You, uh, you look at data, you look at interpretations of data, you look, at al- you look for alternatives, you look for possible, uh, you know, testing hypotheses all the time, coming up with, uh, you know, explanations for the things that you observe. Uh, and also always considering alternative explanations um, that there's, uh, but ultimately there is, I think what drew me to science in the first place is that there are truths. There are things that are, that are in fact knowable, um, that are, that are real truths. And that's probably why I was drawn to it in the first place. Okay. Very good. Uh, And what I'm going to do in a minute, folks, I'm going to ask Bill some questions and then let him expand on it. Uh, but, Bill, I got one more thing I want you to explain, because we had this conversation also, the concept of confirmation bias. Some people know exactly what we're talking about. Others may not be familiar or may have forgotten it. Would you share with our audience what you were sharing with me earlier? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a problem that, you know, everyone has some degree of this, what we call confirmation bias, and that is that you, 
you tend to believe or accept things that support uh, either your preconceived notions or things that you that you already believe. And so you look for support for the things that you believe uh, might be true. And the, the danger there is that you're not you're not being you're not exposing yourself to uh, alternative uh, possibilities or uh, alternative explanations for what what's what's happening in your life or the things that you're observing so that it's something we always have to be aware of you have to be skeptical you have to you know do fact checking and you can't just accept blindly what anyone says about anything really unless they have the credential even the you know credentialed scientists you'll see plenty of scientists who make mistakes um yes. so you have to you have to be you have to be skeptical and you have to be willing to uh, consider alternative points of view. The way I like to explain it is this, and I'll use myself as an example. Uh, I have friends who will talk about what news media they're consuming. I'll give you, just give you a quick example. I was talking with a friend. We both like to watch Fox News, but I also watch CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, and he was critical of me for doing that. He said, well, why are you listening to his other viewpoints? I said, well, because I want to hear what other people have to say, and then I will listen to both presentations, and then I'll decide I don't want people spoon-feeding me everything they think I should know. You know, I, I, I want to know for myself, so I do a lot of reading and studying, but I haven't read anywhere near or studied anywhere near like you have about coronavirus, and this impacts everybody in the world, so this is a timely topic, and I, I want to thank you uh, again for being willing to do this. So let's go to work. So okay. the very first thing that you hear, the travel bans from China and Europe have saved lives in the U.S. Talk about that. Well, it's, it's probably true that keeping infected people out of your country is, was an important thing to do. And countries that did it very early on, like New Zealand and uh, Vietnam, they basically closed their borders completely in January and mm-hmm. were able to to get the virus under control because they kept infected people out of their country. By the time that we imposed travel bans in the United States, both from China and from Europe, the virus was already here. It had already especially come in from Europe. The outbreaks that we saw in New York and New Jersey early on were triggered by uh, visitors from Europe. And so it was already here. The bans helped, I'm sure, but uh, the the virus was already here. When you said that, Last week when we were talking, especially that it came from Europe. See, my mindset was I was thinking that it came from people who came here from China, you know, or who had visited China. So the the concept of it coming primarily from Europe was was fascinating. There's a there's a great uh, an article that was written very early on by a, a a reporter who studied airline routes and traffic air traffic patterns. And I was surprised to realize I'd never heard of Wuhan before this. Um, I had you know, just a mod- <laughs> It's just a you know it's a moderately sized city in in China of only you know what ten million or something. It's you know that to us is gigantic, but in China that's moderate. They have direct flights all over the world, including to the United States, but also to Europe. And so by the time uh, you know the virus probably was spreading already in December, flights were going back and forth. Uh, people were going to Europe, um, and it was essentially 
you know, un, uh, you know, going under the radar. It was it was spreading out across the world before people even realized uh, how serious it could become. So most of the infections that we got, or most of the the, the spread that we got in on along the East Coast, in fact, they have shown had come from infections in Europe. But of course, those came from China. Right, right. Because people who have been visiting there. Here's another one. So uh, let's talk about this one. If we did less testing, we would have fewer cases. <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. That's fact a, or fiction? That's a, <laughs> well, it's totally false. I mean, uh, uh, testing uh, reveals who's infected. If you don't test people, then you don't know who's infected. That doesn't change the fact that they're infected. And, uh, they're still there, right? They're still there. So, you know, doing less testing simply, uh, yes, it means that your confirmed cases would be a smaller number, but the, the total cases would still be there. You just wouldn't know about it and you wouldn't be controlling them in any way. And so the spread of the virus would be less, less well controlled if you, uh, if you did less testing. What we know is that there are a lot of people who are infected, but don't don't have very severe symptoms. They may respond to the virus like they might respond to the flu virus or to the cold virus. So they, they're, we call them asymptomatic. They are people who are infected, who can spread the virus, who don't feel sick. And this is, of course, one of the problems that if you don't think you're sick, then you go about your daily life and you go about your daily business without any uh, precautions. And you could be spreading the virus without knowing it. And that's the scary part, isn't it? Because I'm not sick. I don't think I have it. So if I don't wear a mask and do the things necessary, which we'll get into in a few minutes, then I could be unknowingly impacting other people and making them sick. Exactly right. That's scary. Uh, You made a comment, and in prepping for this call, you shared some information that you said that the it's been estimated that the total number of infections is five to ten times higher than the number of confirmed cases. When I saw that, I gasped. I went, "Are you kidding me?" It's amazing. No, it's be, it's because people who uh, you know who are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms don't go get tested. We don't. That's of course a big problem. We don't have the testing capacity that we really need. Um, right. If you could test everyone frequently then you'd know who had the virus and you'd be able to control its the spread. But right now, uh, you know, getting a test in Leon County, um, sometimes you have to wait a week before you get your results. Well, you know, first of all, if you don't feel sick, you're not going to go get tested and you could be spreading the virus. If you do feel a little bit sick and you go get tested, but you don't get your results for a week, you could be spreading the virus for a whole week before you finally get a result. It's a, uh, we needed, uh, uh, you know, rapid, uh, rapid turnaround uh, and much more widespread testing. That's that's the only way to get it under control <clears throat> is to figure out who's got it, get them to self, you know, to isolate or self quarantine. Um, but if you don't know who's got it, that you, you're you're stuck. And something yes, went through be, my mind. Go ahead, please. Well, it went through my mind as you said that. How many people are have actually been exposed or actually have the virus versus how many have actually been tested? That, you know, that's where this, I've seen a number of estimates between five and 10 times as many confirmed cases 
that there could be five to ten times as many people who actually have the virus or have had it um, and just never knew it. Right. I was, as you were saying, if it takes a week to get my results, I may not have it when I go in to get the test. But by the time I get my results back, I could have been exposed and haven't. Exactly. So how do we solve that? I mean, it's not practical the, uh, to go back the, every the, week and get tested. Well, the, you know, we had a we had an opportunity uh, back in February and March to mobilize the resources of our country uh, to develop and deploy mass, on a massive scale the, the kind of testing that we need. I mean, we need to be testing millions of people per day. Um, and right now we're doing a, a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, I hope we'll get into uh, conversations in a few minutes about uh, vaccines and things like that coming down the road. But I'm intrigued by another one, another statement here. So, uh, again, uh, fact or fiction, our fatality rate is the lowest in the world. <laughs> yeah, there's there's two components to this. There's what they call the, the case fatality ratio, which is total number of deaths from the disease divided by the number of infected infections or how many cases there were. The problem is we don't know how many cases there actually have been. All we know is how many positive tests have been reported. But in fact, there could be five to 10 times as many people that actually had the disease or have the disease. What we do know, so that if you take the total number of deaths and divide it by the number of cases, that gives you the case fatality ratio. We don't know what that is. Nobody knows what that is anywhere in the world because we don't know how many people actually are infected or had been, have been infected. Nobody knows that anywhere. We know how many people are dying. That's, that, the data on that is a lot easier to, uh, to, to get and it's more reliable. But so if you talk about the case fatality ratio, you just, we don't know what that is. It's probably going to be pretty low, probably less than a half a percent. So, you know, that's, that sounds good, but when you have 331 million people, um, if 1% of the people died, <laughs> if everyone got infected and 1% of them died, right, that would be 3 million deaths. Right. So the numbers are, you know, scary. Um, we've got right now, I think, 170,000 deaths from this disease in 180 days that we've known about it. The average is about a thousand a day. That would be the equivalent of having ten airplanes with a hundred people each crashing every day and, and everyone yep. dying. If that were going on, we'd be our country would be in uproar over that. We you know why can't we stop this? Why can't we get that under control? Well, we're getting, you know, we're losing a thousand people a day to something which it was, in fact, uh, mostly preventable. Hmm. So, so the, the, again, pointing out that we, can, we keep pretty good track of the number of deaths. We think it's about 170,000. It could be higher than that because some people die that what we call excess deaths. If you look at how many deaths occur over a, a week's period or a month period or a season, compare that to the number of people that die you know, during, say, the spring or the summer of a normal year, 
and we're higher. We're well above normal, and the estimate is that we're about that probably more the more like two hundred thousand people have died from this. The official count is one seventy, one hundred seventy thousand. But it's probably. I have a question there. I have a question there. I personally know of a situation where a lady, ninety-six years old, died last week. Uh, they say she died of uh, the virus, and I heard her son say, "Well, she had the virus, but let's be honest, she was already very ill, and we knew she was going to die." Yes, she contacted, contracted the virus, but how much of that? Bill, do you think is being reported in a way of where it kind of skewers the numbers? Well, again, there's no way to measure the, that, is there? That's where the excess death <laughs> statistic is is more useful because again, you go back and you look at, you know, any any period you want. So in this case, you would look at since the virus really got here pretty much at the end of February. So if you looked in spring, March, April, May, and summer, June, July, August, so you take that six month period, you look at how many people have died in this country in the last six months. And you compare that to that same period the year before and the year before. And you go back maybe five years and you average how many people normally in this country die every during the spring and summer. And we're right now, we're about 200,000 higher than normal. And we know that, you know, again, the, the testing uh, in the hospitals where they've attributed the cause of death, 170,000, and the excess deaths is 200,000, those numbers aren't very different. You know, it's, it's, they're in the same ballpark. And that tells us, that gives us confidence that, in fact, it is this disease that, so this 94-year-old woman, last year she was 93, and she might have passed away last year under normal conditions, and she would have been part of the, the normal death rate for the spring and summer of a normal year. What we're seeing now is a very abnormal year with 200,000 excess deaths. And what's different? Well, we have a, a virus going around that kills people. <laughs> see, when you explain it that way, it makes sense. But see, for someone who's not a scientist uh, and, and you don't think that way, that would never cross your mind. You're, and again, it comes back to we are overwhelmed with information, but yet how good is the information? But well, let yeah, me jump into another one. They talk about. Uh, uh, comorbidity. These people who have people who are dying often have underlying health conditions, which makes them more more vulnerable. So this virus basically pushes them over the edge. They they are you know they're overweight. They have high blood pressure. They you know they have you know many underlying conditions. And but that you those deaths occur in a normal year. Mm -hmm. And what we see now with the excess deaths being so high and being as I say, being relatively consistent with, with what the hospitals are reporting for uh, coronavirus deaths, uh, those numbers are not that different. So it, that, that gives us confidence that the reason these people are dying is because the virus, if, you know, in some cases, yes, it's the virus. It infects their lungs. They can't breathe. Uh, inflames their heart. They, have, you know, they, they, they die from the virus. But many, many of these deaths are people who were not in the best of health. And the virus just pushed them over the edge. But then you you still have to count the virus as the as the cause. Right. Got it. Oh, that's helpful. I appreciate that. Okay. I want to go to the next uh, statement here because uh, this one is intriguing to me, and I want to hear your views on this one. 
uh, we all learned about this new virus at the same time. So what did other countries do that we had not done in the U.S.? Right. Well, the, the two countries that really stand out are New Zealand and Vietnam. They basically closed their borders. They mm-hmm. uh, test started testing and started isolating people who were positive. Um, they uh, adopted 100% mask wearing because they had. We have seen in previous uh, respiratory viruses like uh, the SARS uh, virus that came out, and of course you can go back 100 years to the Spanish flu epidemic when mask wearing uh, was adopted in this country as well. But those countries went, you know, really hard lockdown. Um, Vietnam locked down for a hundred days. Um, they just shut down everything. Everyone wore a mask. Everyone was I, I self-isolating. Um, and they got their cases down to, you know, essentially zero. Um, and under those conditions, then when the virus is so rare, then people can actually start behaving normally again because the virus just isn't out there um, in, in the public. It's not spreading in what they call community spread. Now, what there are countries that did things intermediately, you know, kind of, uh, you know, some European countries did more or less lockdown than others. Um, Italy got hit really hard early on. The UK has been hit really hard. Um, and if you look at um, what they did early, they didn't do enough. Um, what they did later helped. And you saw in this country, uh, when the, the, the first big wave hit in New York and New Jersey and the you know, hospitalizations were going crazy and you know, Governor Cuomo was asking for ventilators uh, and then they locked things down and their case counts came back down and they've remained quite low uh, ever since then. Um, and they're just now starting to reopen the economy up there. Um, what you saw, you know, in, in states like uh, Florida and Arizona and Texas, things were coming down. And so they started to reopen the economy when the virus was still out there. Uh, it was too too prevalent in the community. And as soon as you open the bars and as soon as you open the restaurants, then people get out there congregating and they spread it. Now. What we have seen is that mask wearing, while it's not perfect, has a big effect, a big positive effect on keeping the virus uh, contained. So that it comes back to this whole idea that an asymptomatic person could be, go out there infecting people without ha- having any idea that they're doing that. If they had a mask on, the chances they would infect other people would be much lower. And if I've got a mask well, we were- on, the chances that you'll infect me go down. Right. We were talking last so, week about this. It really, that stood out for me so much. And, and so I want you to expand on that. So, so you gave an example that demanding that people wear a mask, and, I, and I'm going to say this up front, go ahead and freely admit this. When they first started talking about wearing masks, I was against it. I'm like, I don't, I'm not convinced that that's going to be effective early on. Uh, I'm not so sure I'm going to do that. Uh, then as I started listening and learning more, and then last week, especially when we were talking about it, you made a point about comparing demanding that people wear a mask uh, at, to prohibiting indoor smoking. Would you take a few minutes and talk about that? I, that was very right. profound this for is, me. Well, you, you, you know, people are, people are arguing or claiming that uh, if, you, if you, the government, 
demands that I wear a mask, you're infringing on my rights, my personal rights, and my 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 freedom. To, I to said behave, that up front. I, I admit that. I said I that. Wish. Well, yeah. the same thing happened. You know, it goes back now. It started what twenty years ago, probably, and it took about ten years where we banned indoor smoking because there was more and more evidence that people who are exposed to secondhand smoke could get sick. So we basically violated everyone's personal rights and we told everyone, you cannot smoke indoors, in public buildings, in restaurants, in bars, because when you exhale, that's your exhalation poses a health risk to the people around you. And, you know, not every smoker is going to infect everyone. Not everyone's going to get cancer from uh, breathing a little secondhand smoke. But we, we banned indoor smoking out of what I call an abundance of caution. We want to protect everyone against the harmful exhalations of people who are smoking indoors. Well, if you are, uh, have this virus and you don't, you may be asymptomatic, and you go and you're breathing and you're talking and you're singing and uh, doing all the things you might do in public, you are posing right. a health risk to the people around you. And you do not have the right to make other people sick. You never have that right. And so demanding that people wear masks out of abundance, again, out of an abundance of caution is not a violation of your personal rights. Well, it's a, it's a violation that we should accept because we do not have the yes. right to make other people <clears throat> sick. And uh, just so everybody will know, uh, Bill and I both enjoy our cigars, uh, but uh, we make sure we smoke them outside, right, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And it was, but you know, there was a, there was, you know, you, if you, you, you lived through the, the indoor smoking ban, getting that implemented, Ooh. there was a lot of argument about it and a lot of, Ooh, especially terrible. bars that, uh, you know, didn't want to, didn't want to enforce it. Um, and now it's pretty much accepted. You know, it took a while, but everyone, you know, you know nobody smokes indoors anymore um, because we realized that it was, you know, potentially dangerous to the health of the people around you. So, well, that's a good good segue to another question. So, so here, here's a question for you: What can we do, we everyday citizens, to get things under control? And what should and I'm going to ask this question because you're not in politics. You're not running for any office. Uh, you're not running for uh, mayor, city commissioner, county commission. You're not running for state office or federal office. So what should we as citizens and what should our leaders be doing to help get things under control to where uh, at some point we hopefully go back to a normal life? But frankly, I don't think we'll ever go back to real normal but uh, your thoughts on that, based on your well, you know, studying we, everyone, and scientific. Yeah, there was a you know a lot of discussion early on about flattening the curve, and that was you know that was a good thing. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to reduce the rate of infection, uh, stop the spread, um, and there's you know again some countries went really hard. They locked down completely, and they locked down for months. Um, other countries decided, like Sweden, decided that they weren't going to do that, and they have a a death rate, which is you know the per capita death rate in Sweden is is uh, very high. It's much higher than ours, although ours is pretty high. So those are things that you know we can see what we did. Some people did the some countries did the right thing or did something that helped, 
and other countries did things that didn't help. So we could take a lesson from that. Uh, it may be that if everyone wore a mask all the time, whenever they're outdoors, I'm sorry, whenever they're around other people, um, if you're outdoors, it's, you know, it's the chances of spreading it to someone else are much, much lower. So yeah, you know, if you, you, you can go to the beach probably and not have to wear a mask when you're down in the breeze, you know, with the breeze blowing off the ocean. But, uh, if we had a, a mandatory, a mandatory masks nationwide, that would, that might be enough to reduce the spread to the point where we can get the infection rate down and, uh, oh, you know, get, get things going back to normal. We could lock down for about a month. If we lock down everything again, if we shut down the country for a month, that's about how long it would take because the incubation period is, is a week or so, a week to 10 days, maybe two weeks. And so, uh, you know, you get people, you get through two rounds of infection perhaps in a month or six weeks. That would be extreme. And we probably won't do that. Uh, but it might be that wearing masks is enough. Um, mm. And, you know, that would help if that, if that, uh, if we had that leadership. Again, the countries that did well, New Zealand's the greatest example, they had a very strong prime minister who came out right on the top, right at the beginning. And she said, everyone has to wear a mask. Now, we don't have that sort of structure in this country. We do have a federal government and we have leaders at the top who could send that message. But the mandate would, would have to be enforced or imposed at the state or local level. So states should all, you know, the, if, if, if the president of the United States said everyone needs to wear a mask and then the governors all said, okay, we're going to put in a mask mandate in every state, then that would help. Um, they talk about large gatherings. Well, if everyone wore a mask, maybe those large gatherings wouldn't be such a problem. Um, there's no evidence, for example, during the, uh, the Black Lives Matter rallies that occurred back in June. Um, a lot of those people were wearing masks. And there's, right, we're look, people are looking, did those rallies trigger a, a massive explosion in, in coronavirus cases? And it doesn't appear that they did. So being outdoors is good. Wearing a mask is good. Uh, but, you know, crowded bars and restaurants, no, that's not a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, large, large gatherings where people are not wearing masks. Well, that's happening now. We've seen it happen in some, some examples with uh, weddings or funerals where, uh, or choirs, a church choir. That, that, you know, one person's infected and suddenly half the choir is infected. Uh, that's so, you know, we have to avoid those well, things for, you know, a month, six weeks. Uh, that would that would do it. On our, I like to call it the call before the call. You were making uh, uh, an observation. What university was it? North Carolina, University of North Carolina, right? They just closed yeah, down, they, they opened and then they closed back down. Yeah, well, they they opened up. Uh, they didn't. They had mask recommendation, but not mask mandate. And they had, you know, uh, if you remember when you were in college, <laughs> I do. And there were, you know, there's people get together, and uh, 
There's mm-hmm. a lot of partying going on and not a lot of mask wearing. And so there, uh, there are several outbreaks at, at UNC Chapel Hill, and they've now gone back to uh, no in-person classes for, well, we'll see how long, but they're stop, you know, uh, starting immediately now. They're closing down all their in-person instruction and going to online instruction only. Um, we're going to see that happen. Florida's most of the public schools in Florida are due to open next week. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, if masks are not being worn all the time, these these kids will will be exposed. They will uh, take it home to their families, take it home to their parents and their grandparents, their aunts and their uncles. Um, it's it's potentially uh, that we it's it may be that we don't get it. Everyone's always hoping for the best, um, and it may be that if everyone wore a mask whenever they're around other people, um, that might be enough. But we'll we'll see. What's interesting again, we were prepping for this. One of the things that you shared with me was the kids. Maybe they don't get very sick. But as you just said, they could and probably would spread it if they got it. Maybe they don't get sick, but they could make especially the grandparents sick. I'm I'm thinking about my grandson. Uh, I have great grandchildren even. I'm thinking, wow, I I didn't think about that before. But who are they around? I mean, they could have it and we don't even know it. They could make me sick. Yeah, I'm I'm a I guess I'm a higher risk than normal i'm 67 to 68 in december i've had uh open heart surgery in 2008 i had um artery surgery on both legs last year february and uh, july respectively so that would make me a higher risk correct oh yeah i think you know not uh not as bad as the you know the people with uh, who already have uh respiratory issues, you know, COPD or high blood pressure or uh, diabetes or overweight, you know, those are all the things that that people talk about as, you know, comorbidities that make you more more vulnerable to a more serious outcome from the virus. But you think about, you know, the kids, if you're especially, uh, it's hard to get, we we think it's going to be hard to get really young kids to keep their masks on in school and how to keep them socially distant. They like to hug each other. They like to hug the teachers. They, they're, they're social, you know, we're social creatures. We, we don't like to sit around and be isolated uh, all the time. So uh, you think about, you know, a kid goes to, your kid goes to a school and maybe uh, based on what's gonna happen in Leon County, about half the elementary school children have opted for uh, not coming to school, they'll do distance learning. About about a half, but about a half of the kids say they want to come. And of course, a lot of that's because their parents need to put their kids somewhere so they can go back to work. But right. that kid is going to be exposed to uh, fifty, a hundred other kids who are in turn ex- exposed to their families, their friends. Um, this, you know, your child is essentially being exposed to hundreds of of other people every day they go to school and it doesn't say, you know, you can imagine that uh, if a few in that group are, uh, are carrying the virus and spreading it, that there's a chance that your child will get it. He'll bring it home. 
they'll, you know, you'll be exposed to it. You might not know it, especially for a week or so, you might not know it. Um, and then, uh, so the chance for rapid widespread is, is high. Uh, there was a fellow interviewed on, on television this morning arguing that he thinks that opening schools is going to result in a, a burst of infections bigger than we saw in June and July, where we actually exceeded the number of cases that had initially swamped New York and New Jersey. We exceeded that by a factor of three or four. He's thinking that it's going to be even worse. And, you know, hmm. I hope not, but we're going to get to do, we'll do the test and we'll see. Right. Well, let's talk about testing. Another thing I've heard you say is uh, the only way we're going to really know is if we had the ability to test more people, test them on a more regular basis, so maybe more than once to find out for sure. But let's talk about that, and let's also, uh, as we begin to wrap up a little bit here, think in terms and share with us your thoughts about testing and also um, about a virus, uh, you know, vaccine virus mm -hmm. for the virus because it goes back to i know when i was a kid we were very worried about measles and smallpox and polio it was a big deal and as a rotarian i know that uh, we have been fighting um polio and it's pretty much eradicated around the world now but i know that when i was a kid measles and smallpox was a big scare and uh i remember uh, all the concern about it in the schools family, everywhere. So talk a little bit about testing, the importance of it, and then also uh, vaccine. Your thoughts on that, where we are, where yeah, we are, the, where uh, we're headed. Yeah, I think with, well, again, with testing, um, we don't have enough of it, and it, and the, the turnaround time is too long. We need rapid, uh, you know, basically point-of-use testing where you get the results within a few hours. And we're just now starting to see that uh, the FDA, I think, is, has approved or is about to approve a test that is a saliva-based test that you could do at home and you could get results within a few hours. Now, here we are six months into this, and that's just now coming online. Um, we could have, six months ago, used the Defense Production Act, which was invoked to make ventilators because it looked like we were going to run out of ventilators. Well, if you looked at today's paper, nationally, we have now a surplus of ventilators. We have more ventilators than we need. The Defense Production Act was invoked. Ford, uh, a couple of other co companies jumped on it and started making ventilators. Well, that should have been done for testing as well. We should have used the full power of our government to get companies to develop and get these tests out there as as broadly as possible. But at the same time, you heard from our leadership that, well, maybe maybe we're doing too much testing, and maybe if we didn't do so much testing, we wouldn't have so many cases, and we've already talked about that. So right. th that was a mistake, I think, that was made early on, not to emphasize testing. And we need more testing. You should be if if I were sending my child to school, I'd want to be tested every. I want what that kid to be tested every day. Um, wow, and we're every not day. anywhere close to that. We're nowhere close to that, right? 
It would be um, it would be awesome if we had the ability to do that, wouldn't it? Right. Well, other countries have done this. You know, we didn't, but other countries did. Um, and again, once you get the caseload, the the number of cases and the positivity rate, you know, and for every test, how many, what percentage turns out to be positive, right? They, right now in Florida, it's it's been it's been as high as twenty percent of the tests coming back were positive. Um, now it's down below ten. And they're arguing that the experts argue if you can get it below about 5%, that tells you that you're, you know, things are getting to be under control. But you don't know that if you don't do enough testing. Um, uh, so getting the cases down to a really low level is one way to, to reduce the impact. The other way, well, there's three ways you can do it. That's one way. The other way is what they call herd immunity, where you just let it go. And you just hope that after, after what, 70, 75% of the population has been exposed, has gone through the course of the virus, then uh, there's no one left for the virus to infect. And so that dies out as a result of that. Well, that would mean several million people dying uh, and hundreds of thousands of people with lifelong lung and, and organ damage as a result of this virus. So we don't want that. The other way, the last way is with a vaccine. And people are pushing the vaccine development faster than it's ever been done before. Um, usually it takes years. Now they're trying to do it in months. Um, and we will see vaccines hopefully available, you know, within a few months perhaps and or early next year. And I'm just hoping that, first of all, that they're effective and that they're safe and that people will get vaccinated because we see a rising, uh, what we call the anti-vax movement, people who are somehow fearful of vaccines. They think for a variety of reasons. Uh, you've probably seen the, the, the uh, I don't know what to call it, that uh, Bill Gates is going to put a microchip in the vaccine so he can follow everyone around. It's like, right. you know, <laughs> that's absurd. You know, that's, that's, first of all, he doesn't have that kind of power. Uh, secondly, um, everyone with an iPhone, they're already following you around, right? They are, they already know where you are all the time. They don't need to put that's a microchip right. in your vaccine to follow you around. Um, that's, right. that's just absurd, right? <laughs> he is, he's, you know, that's not, that's never going to happen. That's a, that's a ridiculous thing to even, uh, suggest, uh, there are people who argue that, well, vaccine gave my kid autism. Well, that's been debunked over and over. There are some people who respond badly to a vaccine. Yes, there are some people who actually get the disease that the vaccine is designed to stop. Um, it's a tiny percentage. And yes, it's horrible when it happens. But we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a potentially protecting uh, you know, a couple hundred million, 300 million Americans, and of course, globally, billions of people. And yes, there is going to be some, uh, someone will react negatively to the, to the vaccine. Uh, of course. But right now, you know, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of people react really badly to this virus to the tune of 170,000 deaths. Um, you would never see anywhere close to that. The number of uh, negative uh, responses to a vaccine it wouldn't it wouldn't be it would be in the 
tens or hundreds perhaps, but never in the hundred thousand. So I'm hoping that a vaccine will come sooner rather than later. And that once everyone's vaccinated, basically we can, we can go back to work. You know, I, I, I grew up with a getting the polio vaccine because it was uh, such a devastating disease and everyone got Mm -hmm. it. And there was, there wasn't any, there was no question about it. You did it because you didn't want to get this debilitating disease. Um, people who, who are, uh, you know, it's getting to the point now where people don't want to get their kids vaccinated. Well, if you don't, uh, and measles is a great example because babies cannot, they're too young to be vaccinated, right? So that if you say, well, my five-year-old is old enough or my four-year-old is old enough to be vaccinated, but I don't want to do it because I'm worried that, that they'll get autism. All right, so that kid gets measles, and then he exposes uh, an infant who's too young to be vaccinated to measles, and and that's potentially deadly to the to the infant. So, the people who are who don't want to get vaccinated are actually it's a very selfish position to take. There are some people who you know legitimate reasons that's fine, maybe even religious reasons that's fine, but in many cases it's if you look at it carefully, it's, it's a very selfish attitude to take that you're willing to uh, carry this disease and expose other people to it because you don't want to get vaccinated. Right. And 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 the things you just said, it it may be fine, but it's still endangering other people. Let's do this bill. Uh, I would like for you, please, by way of a wrap up, uh, just walk us through the things that based on this, discussion today, okay, about uh, the virus, facts and fiction, uh, what would you say each of us that's listening to this, either um, today, uh, if somebody were here today, or even a month from now, what are the things that you think we as individuals should be doing right now to protect ourselves and the people that we love and care about? Um, The number one wear a mask and don't complain to the workers at Walmart or Publix or wherever you go shopping when that, you know, they, they ask you to wear a mask when you come in, they're having to fight with people who don't want to wear their masks, Uh, cover your nose and your mouth. Don't put them, don't, don't put the mask below your nose. Yes. It'll fog up your glasses, you know, deal with it. It's just not that big a deal. It's not that uncomfortable. Uh, even a simple cloth mask is better than no mask. And if I think if everyone did that and uh, limited their these large social gatherings, you know, the bars, if the bars reopen, um, there's there's, you know, because nobody's you've got to take your mask down to drink your beer. <laughs> so that's a risk. Um, stay home as much as you can. And uh when you're out and when you're at in, in public places with other people, wear a mask. You don't have to wear it in your car. You don't have to wear it at home. You don't have, have to wear it when you're walking around the block to get exercise. Uh, but wear it when you go to the store. Wear it when you're, you know, with other, around other people in an enclosed space. And limit the exposure. Limit the number of times you do that. Those are the simple. It's so simple. Um, we get this under control, I think, very quickly. 
I have been impressed with some things that I have seen personally. I went to a funeral tomorrow, be uh, four weeks ago to be exact, and I was impressed with the way that was handled. Everyone in the room, everyone at this chapel was wearing a mask. No one had to come over and be prodded to where nobody would, had to be told to keep some distance. Um, in fact, I'm to the point now when I see someone that I know very well, but normally I would big old hug. I just, I wait, I, I stop. I say, okay, what are we doing? Are we bowing, hugging, kissing, handshake, <laughs> elbow bump, ankle bump? What are we doing? And, you know, many times now I'm just, I see people, you, you know, I served in the military when I was in Okinawa and Thailand, a lot of bowing. So we just bow. And uh, it's, it, we make light of it and have some fun with it because the damn thing is such a serious topic that you gotta, you gotta bring some levity to it. If not, you go insane. But, but, um, I was impressed with that at the funeral. And then I went to a function, a dinner, and I was cautious about going. I said, well, I'm going to go. And if I'm you know, worried, I'll get up and leave. And again, people, people who came as a couple, you were at a table by yourself, no one else around you. Tables were like 10 feet apart. It was really strange looking, actually, because they had to take up more space than they normally would. But I was impressed. And no one was acting out as the kids would do as they call it everyone wore the mask they took it off to have their dinner and then when they went to the bar to get another drink it was impressive to see them put it back on while walking up there and i thought wow what a what a great example of the things that we should be doing and i haven't been to other events no i I agree i think again it's a it's a it's uh you know it's if you care about your fellow man, your fellow, you know, your the humans that you live around, uh, this is the, this is the, in, uh, the, all the words, it's the humane thing to do. It's the intelligent thing to do. It's even the patriotic thing to do. If you want to protect, you know, our country's going through a real tough time right now. We have massive unemployment. We have people losing their jobs. We have businesses closing. Uh, you know, this virus is causing, taking a huge toll on our yes. economy, on our country, our social structure. Uh, it's the patriotic thing to do to uh, to help get it under control. And and wearing a mask is so simple. In the early days, I understood. They said, don't wear masks because we need to keep them for the healthcare workers and the first responders. That's that's still true. And ninety five. These high efficiency N95 masks should be, you know, the general public doesn't need those. Healthcare workers need them. But a simple cloth mask, these uh, surgical masks, the paper, they look like paper, the blue ones that you see hook around your ears, those all are, they all are better than nothing, right? Right. <clears throat> Any mask is better than no mask. And wear it whenever you're around other people outside of your, the people you live with. And well, that would, Bill, I hope, I think that would have a, again, the countries that did this, that we can't separate the effect, right? They, the countries that locked down and went to mask wearing, Taiwan did that. Universal masks, they locked down their country. If, if we had done what Taiwan had done, based on our population compared to theirs, we would have had 100 deaths from this virus instead of 170,000. That's the difference between total control with strong leadership uh, and and 
society willing to go along with the message that they get, the leadership that they're getting. Um, we, we could have saved hundred, hundred and sixty five thousand people. Um, but while, while that's not, true, it's not too late. <laughs> right. It's not too late. So I was going to say, while it's true, there's nothing we can do about that, but here's what we can do. And the only thing we can do is take personal responsibility and the first obligation, just like on an airplane, they tell you, okay, if there's a problem, oxygen mask falls down, put it on yourself first. There's a reason for that. So you're able to help other people. So first take personal responsibility folks and take care of yourself, take care of the people around you that you love and care about and be respectful of other people. And Bill, I just want to say thank you so much. This, this, um, I knew this would be good, but it was better than I anticipated. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for sharing the knowledge you have gained by letting the scientists in you do the exploring and the heavy lifting for us. I just thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share this information on our podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure to do it. And I would, uh, the closing thought would be if you have questions about this sort of stuff, you know, turn to the experts, turn to the virologists and the epidemiologists, the, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, because they are the ones who are, who really understand this and are going to give you the best advice on what to do going forward. Uh, you know, the talking head you might see on, on one of the, uh, you know, afternoon TV shows is not an expert in this field. So talk to the experts, nor, listen to the experts. And nor are, nor are the politicians that are arguing and fussing about stuff either you know, as we get closer to elections. But uh, my friend, um, I just look at the time. We've been going for over 55 minutes, and it seems like it's been five minutes. Thank you so much for sharing. And, um, I, again, uh, every time I'm around you, I learn something new. So thank you so much, Bill. Well, thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, please uh, expand your knowledge and understand more. And, Bill, uh, we'll catch up uh, later, my friend. Thanks again. If you'd like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities products and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances. Not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System, the Living Balance Sheet, and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York, copyright 2005-2020. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own. 
2020-107125 expires August 2022.